You're listening to the newest episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 60th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. I'm here today with Jamira Alexander, who is the president and executive director of Public Narrative, formerly Community Media Workshop. Jamira is a trained journalist who is not only a storyteller, but a strategist committed to improving community health and well-being through media and civic engagement. Under her leadership, public narrative uses storytelling to implement narrative change strategies related to public safety, health, and education. Welcome, Jamira, and thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Kim. This was one of those hurry up podcast. So I I only found (laughs) out about Jamira yesterday and she jumped right in and said she would do this. So this is really raw stuff because we haven't had a time to really chat about it. So I just want to thank you so much for being willing to do that. Sure, no problem. So would you tell the audience a little bit about who you are and what you do, please? Yeah. So, you know, aside from uh, what was mentioned in my bio, I am just a lover of learning about people, connecting with people, understanding what they do, really like bridging the gap and connecting the dots. And so public narrative is a place that really allows me to do that through and by the relationships the organization has had with journalists over the years, in addition to relationships with community organizations. And in bringing the two together, it really allows us to tell better stories, deeper stories, more intuitive stories, that help to inform our communities. So I'm really excited about the work that we're doing at Public Narrative and how we've been able to really leverage a lot of our resources and adopt a narrative change model that will allow us to really identify, you know, not to come in and say, oh, community, you need this or organizations, you need this, but for folks to really identify what they have need of and allow us to really plug and play as needed. It sounds like pretty rewarding work. Do you get a lot Mm -hmm. of pleasure from that? You know, I do when I'm not stretching myself too thin. I really do. And when does uh, that I, happen? I know, right? So <laughs> I'm, I'm doing a little better with boundaries. I'm doing a little better with self-care. There's still much work to be done, certainly in the times that we live in right now. You know, as, as a self-proclaimed life learner, I am one who just loves information. And so I find myself having to turn the news off, having to turn off the TV, having to, you know, put the phone down and not consume so much of what's going on so as not to let that steal a lot of my optimism and joy. I find that, you know, in being able to set healthy boundaries, there's a way of staying connected to what's going on without allowing it to consume you. That's a beautiful lesson and one that I probably could learn from you to do a little better. (laughs) I consume a lot of the horror stories on the news. And speaking of the times we live in, it's been a very challenging four years for me and Mm -hmm. for many of us. And, you know, that just doesn't evaporate because we have a new president. So there's a lot of work to be done. So what would you say are some of the things that need to be priority for us as we move forward? You know, Kim, I'm so glad to hear you say that just because we have a new president doesn't mean that the problems go away. You know, I shared this recently. I found it hard to celebrate on Inauguration Day, you know, knowing the mess that would need to be cleaned up, but then also like 
not wanting folks to feel gaslighted in that, okay, we're celebrating a new administration, but that doesn't mean that we aren't still feeling the impact of the last four years. And I think part of that priority perhaps needs to be really listening to communities and understanding what folks have need of instead of speculating what communities have need of. I think that the pandemic has really challenged us to find ways to remain connected, certainly as we only had the virtual space to remain connected. But in that connection, how can we still sustain some sort of impact? And I'm really encouraged by the work that a lot of philanthropy has done to come together and identify how they can support organizations. But I think there's a way in looking at how you reach further, go deeper with that impact. And I'm really excited about some of the work that our friends and partners are doing, but I think that there needs to be a priority of support on the ground, if you will, you know, and I know that there are a lot of intentions for that. I know there are a lot of conversations and a lot of initiatives rolling out, but to really know that those initiatives and those projects are going to have an impact, I think we need some sort of guarantee. And I don't exactly know how we prioritize that guarantee. Certainly as we're exploring what equity looks like and making certain that we get resources out, I think that the priority has to be the system in the way that things are disseminated. Because we saw even with small businesses attempting to, uh, you know, attain some of that PPP money, a lot of small businesses went without because of how those funds were disseminated, even though it gave the perception that this is our approach to equity and helping small businesses sustain. So I have friends who are small business owners and just in learning of their stories and how they were able to like make ends meet and stay afloat. It's troubling when you poured so much of your life into a business and then in a few months, all of your years of hard work kind of goes under. So it's a struggle to really balance that narrative on its own. In addition to looking at other narratives that we've seen where, where the breadwinners have been the ones to contract the COVID-19 virus and then ultimately lose income. I don't know exactly how those stories or those issues are prioritized, but I know that those are the ones that, that need it most. Certainly as we go into this third round or we're in the midst of this third round of PPP money. Right. I understand. I've been one of those small businesses scrambling for that PPP money. So I know mm -hmm. what that's like, but at the same time, I was able to access PPP money. So there may be some definite disparities there. I know that I have some friends who have small businesses, but because they don't pay themselves, they don't give themselves mm -hmm. a paycheck with the W-2, they didn't qualify. So there was some discrepancy there for sure. Mm -hmm. So I just want some clarity. I think I know, but for the listeners, when you talk about the communities that you work with, are there specific communities? Are you talking communities of color? Are you talking low economic areas? What communities are you actually working with? Yeah, we're working with communities of color for sure, but we're also working with those communities of nonprofits who then reach communities of color. So we may work with communities of color directly and or indirectly. I find a lot of times if I'm ever working with a nonprofit leader who is not a person of color, it's really interesting their perspective that they share and the passion that they bring to their work. 
there's disdain for, you know, the savior syndrome. And so oftentimes we find that there are some white people who come in and they, they, you know, they want to save all the black and brown folks and these sorts of things. And though their intentions are well, it comes across in a way that is very off-putting and very insulting, really, to the people that they're attempting to serve. And and so very fortunately, I haven't run into any of that with any of the leaders that we've worked with, but you have to know that as a Black woman, I am watching for it and certainly looking for what might we need to correct on our end so that in the delivery of their service and support, it doesn't come across in a way that is distasteful. Well, you know, that brings me to an illustration that most people who are involved in any way in support of Black Lives Matter movement have seen, and it shows people watching a soccer game Mm -hmm. and there's three of them and they're Mm -hmm. different heights. And the first window it's labeled equality and everybody has a box to stand on. And Mm -hmm. that's great. It helps the taller person who can already see over the fence can still see over the fence. The middle person can now see slightly over the fence and the smallest one, it didn't help him at all. Mm -hmm. And then you go to the second window and it's equity and not everybody gets the same resources because not everybody needs the same resources. So the taller Mm -hmm. person doesn't need a box. The middle person gets one box and the smallest person gets two boxes. And that's good because everybody can see over the fence. But I think it's what you're talking about when you talk about white people with the savior complex, right? This equity Mm -hmm. is a great thing. It helps people get what they need, but it also makes them feel like they may be a charity case or something, which which is not good for self-esteem. It does not help a person move forward. They don't need the handout. They need the third window, which is called justice. And in the third window, they get rid of the wooden fence and they make a chain link fence. So no matter how tall you are, you can see through it. And that's where I think the work really needs to be done. We've done equity and it's caused a lot of hard feelings on both sides. You know, when you look at quota systems, You've got some white males in particular who are very resentful of the quota system that they call it the equal opportunity. And then if we got rid of those systemic barriers, then it wouldn't be an issue on any side. I think that that's where we need to go. But the question of how do we get there is one that will be a challenge to see if we can agree on. I'm sure you've seen that. I was describing it for our listeners who maybe. Yeah, no, I have totally have. What are your thoughts about that? You know, I understand like that everyone has a challenge in grappling with it, but I think where we have to grapple from is what sets it apart. Certainly I'm not a white man, so I can't speak from experience of this, but just from what I see, white men are grappling with the quota system from a lush life, Mm -hmm. from a posh life, but people of color are grappling with poverty from disinvestment and in many instances from a system that sets us up to fail. So I can't spread my empathy, you know, equally because our experiences are not the same. And even if the system were to change in that regard to remove quotas, because it's so embedded in people's minds that, oh, you must be a criminal or you must be whatever, 
But then again, you must be forthcoming and you must be upright. When in all actuality, if you begin to peel back layers, that's not always the case. So I can't really spread my empathy for that cause equally because our experiences are not the same. Our experiences in this country are not the same. I would have thought, I really thought at the start of COVID, I really thought that that would cause us all to open our eyes and wake up, but it hasn't. And we've seen it even the way in which people have been administered COVID tests and the way that this vaccine rollout is happening. We keep seeing where billionaires are somehow getting access to this vaccine. In all actuality, we have a health crisis. We have a health crisis that people of color are not necessarily set up to win and challenge this virus and combat this virus. So I get that we all have different experiences with it, but knowing as much as I know about the intentional racial barriers in this country, and then also the intent behind maintaining those barriers and disguising it as other things. It's like, I can't wrap my mind around the whole challenge of the Black Lives Matter movement or the whole challenge of folks combating that with all lives. I can't wrap my mind around it. I just can't. I know. And I have spoken to that. And I'd like to just say for some of our listeners that people think that it's a good thing to respond to Black Lives Matter with All Lives Matter because they feel that all lives matter and they're trying to show I don't discriminate. I'm open to everything. But the challenge is that white lives have always mattered. When can you find a time in this country when white lives didn't matter? White lives Mm -hmm. are valued higher, have been valued higher than black lives. And if you don't, if you can't see that, all you have to do is look on the news and watch what happens to black people when they encounter police and people of color and watch what happens when police encounter white folks. You saw it with the invasion of the Capitol building. Yes. Police were afraid to respond with violence. They're never afraid to respond with violence to a black potential offender, even if they're not an offender. I can point you to story after story after story. It's not just George Floyd. I mean, there's been so many people just in the last year that I've had my eyes open to, mainly, Jameer, I think because of COVID, we're home. And so these stories are like bombarding us. Elijah Cummings was a heartbreaking story. This poor young man was on the spectrum and was stopped by police and killed with ketamine. He was harmless. He was begging them not to hurt them. And this man lost his life. And I just saw yesterday, this is the other thing, even when something happens and a person of color dies, often there's no charges brought against police. But now because of Black Lives Matter, I think it's because of that movement, they're at least being charged. And I just heard yesterday that uh, the man, I think he was in um, Milwaukee, who lost his life. The officers were acquitted. There'll be no accountability for that life lost. And it's just tragic. And you say, because I've had people who talk to me, Jamira, who say, well, the same thing happens to white offenders, but the news doesn't report it because it doesn't sell. And I don't believe that that's true. Statistics Mm -hmm. don't bear that out. And look at the number of Black people sitting on death row, people of color on death row. What was the movie? It was a true story. Jamie Foxx was in it. Yeah. I can't think of it. 
that was such an impactful movie for me. Just Mercy. Just Just Mercy. Mercy. Thank you. The movie Just Mercy. If you watch that movie at the end, it talks about the percentage of people on death row who are later exonerated and found not guilty with DNA Mm -hmm. evidence. And that highlights for me the way that Black offenders are coerced by police into confessing to something that they didn't do. That is just a travesty of justice. There's no justice there. For me, I totally agree with you about equity principles need to be in place on our way to dismantling or that discrepancy and the oppression that's built into our systems, that institutional racism that's been there from the beginning. And Mm -hmm. that's going to need white people to cooperate. Mm -hmm. White people have to see it and then work on dismantling it because we're the ones that created it. It can't be dismantled without our cooperation. So I'm speaking to my white listeners to take a look and see it. Support on the ground. You talked about that. What does that look like? It really looks like disseminating resources to folks who are doing the work and not really leaving folks to scramble for money to pay their teams or money to purchase items to get out to community companies donating and sponsoring. It looks like honestly just following the money and watching where it flows. And so there's a lot of initiatives that have have really sprouted in the last, I'm going to say 15 months or so, certainly around Chicago to really focus on the South and West sides of Chicago. But even going a little deeper than that, other parts of the city and the Southland that need support. And it's not hard to find where this work and where the support is needed. We see a lot of construction in areas that always are being constructed, if you will. But we need that throughout the entire area and not just in those communities that there's more development. Where can we invest and increase the amount of development in other parts of the community and not just when, you know, a new project is coming to town, but to invest in the city and invest in the people in a way that really shows how dynamic this city can be. We're dynamic in conversation. We're not always dynamic in practice. Right. And I think that that speaks to some mistrust in communities of color of initiatives that are there for just a a moment and then they're gone, right? And so if you start to believe and trust in these initiatives and then they're yanked away, like it's a grant and it's good for a year and you are starting to rely on that, it can really cause some people in those communities not to even get involved in those initiatives. So is that what you were talking about when you mentioned the guarantee that you're looking for, that these initiatives will be there and people can count on them and it isn't just a fly-by-night operation? Totally. I worked with a group a few years ago and we conducted some research and asked young people their thoughts and ideas around after school programs. And they were very transparent in sharing that, you know, there's lots of programs that surface, but just as soon as those programs are making an impact, ultimately they go away. And we understand like the politics of it, like they go away typically because like the leaders have changed, the leadership has changed hands or there's no longer any funding for it or whatever the case. But for a family that is benefiting from this project or program, it just looks as though something came to town. It had an impact. It didn't have time enough 
to make as, as significant impact as it could. So the longevity was not there. And so ultimately listening to these young people and how this is impacting them, I think another thing that is important to prioritize is youth voice. You know, I know there's a lot of stigma behind that, but when you think about young people, certainly I've never been 17 in the year 2021, right? So I don't know how to deal with crisis the way that they've learned to deal with it most of their lives. I think that comes with a certain measure of wisdom that they truly have if we give them the space to talk about it and we give them the space to help ideate next steps and what actions need to happen beyond this whatever conversations. I don't think that there are enough spaces that exist that welcome youth voice in that, in that way. I think it's become so, what's the word? I think it's become like so nuanced that we're okay with welcoming youth voice for the sake of PR because it looks good, but not necessarily because they haven't been tainted with the ills of society just yet. So in all fairness, I think it's a priority is not only prioritizing what's going on on the ground level and what's going on in communities deeply, but also prioritizing those folks who have lived experiences regardless of their age. It speaks to the concept of inclusion, right? We can have them at the table, but what good does it do to have somebody at the table if we don't listen to their conversation? Absolutely. Yeah. That is something that I think is so important. We've worked at diversity in our companies in some ways, not enough for sure, but bringing different people to the table, but then it's, are they really at the table? Are they at the table of decision makers? Are they able to contribute their thoughts in a way that they're respected? And do we really listen and take action on some of those ideas and concepts? I think that's where inclusion really is important and why diversity isn't enough anymore. It's not enough Mm -hmm. just to hire people who are different than you. It's about allowing them to be their own person and bring all of that culture with them. You don't hire diversity and then try to whitewash it and make them look like you. You bring diversity because you actually value that diversity. And then you talk to people who are different and you listen and you actually include those ideas in your plan moving forward. That's what real inclusion is about. I think that if you do self-evaluation in every instance, you can find ways to do it better. We're never perfect at that. We always have room to grow. Absolutely. Yeah. So I wanted to, in this particular episode, talk a little bit about privilege because I know that privilege is a hot button, scary, anxiety producing, and sometimes anger producing word. And I thought maybe you and I could have this conversation. And I like to do this by saying, we haven't rehearsed this. We have no idea what each other is going to say. And Jamira, I want to say to you that I am not perfect in my language and in my thoughts. And so if I say or do anything that causes you to take a step back or like, what the heck, I would really like you to tell me so that I can adjust because I know 
I want to proudly proclaim that I'm not a racist, but I, I've learned that I can't do that because I have been in a racist system my whole entire life. I have been fed ideas. I've watched television that portrays the black guy as always the bad guy. So I know that I have some of that in me. I'm completely anti-racist. And I want you to know that. So I would really appreciate if you feel safe enough with me that you could just point out if I say something that is offensive in any way. I appreciate that. And, and I sincerely mean it. And I think that when we have these conversations in any form, I think that the people who have the privilege, and we're, we're not just going to talk about white privilege, because there's a lot of privileges that exist that we just kind of take for granted that I think may be a little more apparent and a little less hot button topics. We could start with male privilege. I know men are going to think they don't have privilege. And there's ways in which you might be able to argue women have privilege. I would have to listen to your argument and be able to respond to that. But when I think of male privilege, I think of myself as a, as a woman who is pretty darn independent. I am out by myself a lot. I travel by myself because I'm a speaker. And so I'm often traveling alone. And I know that there's certain things that I just won't do because it doesn't feel safe for a woman to do that a man wouldn't even think about. Like I know when I travel, I tend to stick with restaurant chains to go to eat instead of trying to go to the local places where the food might be better because I don't know what's in those local places, right? You don't know if you're going to walk into a place where a woman alone could be victimized or I don't go out alone at night because it may not be safe. Now I know men can be victimized too, but they tend not to think about that as much as a woman needs to think about that. Yeah. Um, so for me, that's a concept of male privilege. And if you look at the income for men and women doing the same work, we still make less money than a man doing the same work. So that's another male privilege piece. So there is a male privilege. There's a heterosexual privilege. I can kiss my partner in public. Public displays of affection are all good. I can put a photo of my family on my desk and not have any questions about that. People will appreciate that. But when your partner of choice is not a heterosexual opposite of you, then it really becomes tricky. And it depends on the environment, whether you feel safe enough to do that. Public displays of affection, you can't do that in some places. And if you do, if you feel that you're going to do that, you may have some pushback. People may say things to you that are really disturbing. So there's that heterosexual privilege. And I like to talk about the one time when I spent two months in a wheelchair. I broke both my ankles in a hot air balloon accident. Some of you would know mm. that. And uh, I was in a wheelchair and I noticed that no one saw me and it hit me that when I was a little girl, I remembered my mother telling me not to stare when I saw someone with some severe cerebral palsy walking in an unsteady way. And I just kept staring. I might've been six or seven years old. And my mother leaned down to me, grabbed my arm really tight and said, stop staring. And I think what I learned was not to look when I see someone with a physical challenge. And I think I'm not the only one who learned it because when I was in a wheelchair, nobody looked. It was like they just mm. didn't want to see someone who wasn't whole. 
I believe I experienced able body privilege, not to mention the fact that I went to an orthopedic office and their public restroom would not accommodate a wheelchair. That was insane to me. I had to go through the building to the doctor's bathroom that was huge. It was palatial and use that bathroom because the wheelchair would fit in there. But in the restroom that was part of their waiting room, the wheelchair wouldn't fit and I couldn't close the door and fit the chair at the same time. It was really sad. If we look at white privilege, the idea of white privilege doesn't mean that white people haven't experienced difficulties, haven't had it tough, didn't grow up poor, didn't lose a job for some reason. But the thing to remember is that white people didn't have those hardships with black skin and all that comes with having skin of color. It's not that we haven't had bad things. We have. But it's like you said in the beginning when we talked about equity, it's hard for you to have empathy for white folks who come from a place of privilege. If you could speak a little bit about that to the the way that privilege is maybe looked at by the African-American community, that would be awesome. I think privilege, just like everything else, is a matter of perspective and certainly a matter of experience. I've looked at, certainly looked at, you know, the way in which white people have enjoyed privilege and the way that Blacks have been without it and have really grown to appreciate what we as Black people have had access to, what we have been able to take advantage of through and by our village. I think that relationally, and I I can't speak for certain on this, but I think relationally, sometimes there are things that are lacking that privilege just won't offer you. We see that a lot of times in our character. We see it a lot of times in sometimes the way we lead, the the decisions that we make, the um, ways in which we create access for other people, what we see as our own responsibilities and uh, hold ourselves personally accountable for. I see that it's all in how we view our own privilege and what we have access to. And I think that's where sometimes things get lost when we, yes, our own personal narratives matter, but our own personal narratives are not the only narrative in the grand scheme of things. And sometimes when we are so self-centered, I don't know how else to say this, but sometimes when we we are so self-centered, it's not really easy to see someone else's perspective and realize that where we see things from is a position of privilege. Not usually until we're in those positions where we can experience and see things the way that folks see them. And I can just share from my own personal experiences. I've had financial hardships through the years. I've had different experiences that I've had to overcome But it was not until being placed in those positions that I could have an appreciation for people just kind of like scrambling to make ends meet and making certain that they survive. To put that hat on or experience life from that perspective gave me a deeper appreciation for just being able to provide and being able to be gainfully employed and that sort of thing. So I think that sometimes, sometimes, certainly if we don't waste our experiences, we can come out a little better than we first entered in. But I want this to be as positive and affirmative as possible. But sadly, when we find ourselves in hard situations, 
sometimes we try to get out of them too quickly and we find ourselves out of those situations without gaining the wisdom needed to either not go back or to then help someone else as we are establishing ourselves. I don't think that there's an appreciation for that simply because the emphasis is on protecting our privilege and or gaining privilege that others have. So it's like a transference of the same self-centeredness, if you will, when in our actuality, and I don't know how this happens, I don't know that it ever will, but how do we do away with privilege? Because somebody's going to come out not properly served, not properly supported. But how do we do away with it all together? And this system, I mean, it's just not set up for us to not to not have to have the conversation about privilege, but it's just not set up for us to even have to deal with making it through life, knowing that you either have it or you don't in all the ways you either have it or you don't. You talked about a lot of different angles of this privilege conversation and to have to grapple with that in multiple areas at the same time, you can't help but be traumatized by that. You know, in, in some of the stories and experiences that folks have shared, I think if we stop and we take a, a second to not see it our own way, I think it gives us the permission to allow someone else's story to educate us. You talked about how privilege can be such a sensitive subject. And it is because we're not usually willing to set our own perspective aside because our perspective and our experiences matter too. But the thing about it is no one is suggesting that your experiences don't matter. The suggestion is that you just set it aside for a second to learn of someone else's plight and find compassion and find empathy for someone else's story. I shared this with my predecessor, jokingly, of course, but I shared this with my predecessor, wanting to, of course, marry a Black man. But if I found myself in a biracial marriage, that I was going to leverage that white privilege. And when I think closer or think deeper on that, what all would that mean for creating access for my people if it came to that? I'm not suspecting that it will, but how do we take, especially those of us who have access to white privilege and we have access to our own ethnic communities, how do we leverage that access to both worlds? And I I don't know that there's enough of that conversation even. It's sensitive, yes, but I think the sensitivity is taken out of the conversation or taken out of the equation when we're able to understand like, hey, this is all that you've ever known, or this is all that I've ever known, or this is how I was raised, or this is where my belief or my my value system lies. And being willing to be re-educated and unlearn the things that were harming to society and harming to other people. But self-centeredness won't allow us to lay aside what we learn because whatever our grandparents taught us, that's the law because they're our grandparents. But In all actuality, quite a few of our grandparents were not upstanding citizens, if we're just being honest about it. Like they, some of them may have contributed to the very system that we find ourselves victims of. And I think that we're all really victims of it because just because you perform an act or an action on or inflict an action on someone else 
does not mean you are not impacted by that. That action, it leaves some sort of residue on your own heart that you couldn't possibly see the world clearly when you're bearing the burden of so much pain, so much inflicted pain on other races and other ethnicities. So it's a lot to unfold, but I think the we first have to start at welcoming other people's stories and experiences and understanding that ours is not the only one that shapes the public narrative. I love that, Jamira. I really love that because I always say that the best way to get over racism is to have conversations. That Dr. King quote about People don't know each other because they don't communicate with each other. And we need to start talking and having these conversations from a non-defensive perspective and just educate me, teach me, let me feel what it might be like to be a person of color. I'll never know that, you know, I'll never be able to experience that, but through your stories, I may be able to get a sense of it. And that Mm -hmm. would help me be more anti-racist. So Jamira, how will people get a hold of you if they want to reach out and hear more about you and the public narrative? Sure. So you can reach out, visit our website, www.publicnarrative.org. And you can follow us on social media at Public Narrative. Terrific. I really want to thank you, Jamira, for taking the time to be on this podcast at the you know last minute. I appreciate your courage in, in doing that. I would love to have you back the next time the diversity topic comes around because I suspect we have much more we could be talking about. Sure. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You just finished listening to an episode on the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast. If you liked today's episode, make sure to leave me a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this podcast with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at the Relationship Center on Instagram or Facebook. I hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing Joe Santana about diversity, equity, and inclusion and the bias that is built into artificial intelligence for those using AI in their business systems. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at www.therelationshipcenter.biz forward slash podcast and remember to subscribe.